So my lead in my, uh, <clears throat> we're going to briefly discuss uh, the career and the legacy uh, of the indisputably uh, great 70s director, William Friedkin, who I basically, my, my lead is that he was really in on his, on his game and doing really well and like a hot shot for 15 years. Right. That would be 1970 from the boys in the band to his arguably, I think, his third best film, uh, which is To Live and Die in L.A., which is uh, I've recently rewatched, and I think it's really quite excellent. And that's 1985. And his so his golden period was 70 through 85. Mm. But if you want to be really tough about it and be really strict, he really didn't have a really... His real golden period was only eight years, and that was uh, 70 uh, through... So sorcerer in '77. <clears throat> that was really the. That was like unstoppable. He was like a huge. You know, he was Spielberg. He was yeah. Coppola. He was on that level. Mm. You know, Robert Altman, Scorsese. You know, he was one of the really paramount people that uh, you know, whose power and vision and energy was was legendary. He was really quite the guy. But it all came to a screeching halt when he missed the Zeitgeist or his partners and his distributor they, they all kind of didn't realize what was coming but in 77 was the year of the explosion of star wars and people were much more interested in that sort of thing hmm. than they were you know and that's they you know it wasn't that they made a mistake but they missed it the, the zeitgeist changed right that that year it had begun to change as you know with your Paramount uh, film of your life, Jaws, in 75. But 77 is when it really, like, uh-oh, something new is happening yeah. here. And people are not into seriously arty, fascinating films like like Sorcerer, which I think is, uh, is you know, wonderful. It's an infallible mm. film in a certain sense. But what do you feel about um I think that's right, Sorcerer? except for I would say that he also made, after that point, he made Cruising and he made... To Live and Die in L.A., and I think those are still considered significant films, both of them, even though I didn't... Um, oh, yeah. I, absolutely. Yeah. Um, cruising, you know, it was considered quite uh, forward-thinking. But I, but I get your point here. You're right that he wasn't able to become, to, to remain one of those. You know, he's kind of like Francis Ford Coppola in that way. They're sort of left mm -hmm. twisting in the wind after this period. They couldn't really evolve the way like Martin Scorsese has been has been able to do, you know. Um, of course, Scorsese had his setback period, which was from the early to mid '80s, when he had to kind of regroup and go low budget, and you know. But he found his voice again, and then he got then he did one of his masterful most masterful films, The Last Temptation of Christ, and that put him back on the road. And then he did Goodfellas, and so he just had that knack to keep going and rediscover and rethink things. And for whatever reason, um, you know, it, of course, I mean, um, Friedkin kept being Friedkin, and, but I think that we all have, all artists, all people who, you know, are, are in the business to, to create and interpret and revitalize and all that. I just don't think he had a lot more to say after To Live and Die. Well, I think, that was his last great film. Yeah, I think that there's a problem when you... I really believe that winning winning an Oscar is sometimes a curse because Coppola mm -hmm. and him both won early on in their careers and it's, it's supposed to be a career high point, whereas Scorsese, he didn't win until 2006 with The Departed. 
So he was always... And he didn't expect to. Remember, he thought that was just, oh, that's just a you know, crime movie. He didn't regard it as a... Uh, he didn't think that that was going to be his... Yeah, when you're trying for the Oscar, yeah. you're always making a quote-unquote important movie instead of just a good yeah. movie. But but you know he wanted to... Everybody knew he wanted to win the Oscar. You know, he know, they knew that was Aviator and, you know... And so when you have that fire burning and it keeps you trying harder... Uh, to make great mm-hmm. movies, but I think if you're Francis Ford Coppola, you're William Friedkin, your and your career high point is at the beginning in the 1970s. It's harder mm-hmm. to have any life after that, you know. It's the normal, natural way of things for people who are really good at their craft, at their art, to to you know enjoy a, a an amazing, uh, vital, powerful uh, chapter in which everything is going your way and it's really working out. Most people have a chapter that lasts, you know, whatever, 10 years, 15, less sometimes. Uh, it's just a normal state of affairs. Very few directors, are, you know, are like Scorsese or, or, or Spielberg, obviously, or, you know. Yeah. Um, the normal thing is to not have last that long. I um, also think that the 70s was unique in its delivery of these mavericks, of these superstar directors you know they're coming out of the studio system right where it was like William Wilder and Fred Zinneman and and Frank Capra and you know they were it was just they were workhorses and they were always turning Mm. out these great movies but they were so within the system they weren't you know they never really broke out and became these superstars that these guys did back then these Mm -hmm. 70s directors you know at this at this moment of of a kind of a renaissance of filmmaking of the 1970s, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's hard to compare that era with any other era just because the studio, maybe maybe you could go all the way back to the beginning of movies, the Babylon era, where people were just kind of running around. And mm. you get Orson Welles coming out of that period, you know? Um, and you have these, these superstar directors. But Hollywood always has had this love-hate relationship with those kind of guys. That's why it took Spielberg's... Um, Scorsese so long to win an Oscar. They never liked the fact that he was, he got so much attention, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and they, you know, they liked people that were more in the system, that worked within the system. Although Scorsese eventually became that kind of director, he wasn't really that in the beginning. I thought it was, um, as far as a film of Scorsese that really touched me. I mean, it's not just how successful the ingredients come together and how uh, assured the, the, the feeling of the film. It's how deeply and gently and profoundly it touches you deep, deep down. And uh, I really feel that, um, uh, that Bill Fre- Billy Freakin, for all his obvious talent and dynamism, dynam- dynamism and his, his, his energy, he didn't have that inner, gentle, spiritual thing going on. He was mm-hmm. a uh, kind of a you know, he was a he was an engine. He was Hurricane Billy. You know, a right. guy who really had that high impact thing. But he never made a film that was like Scorsese's *The Last Temptation of Christ*, or uh, you know, his gentler films. He didn't have much of a gentle side. He wasn't frank, him himself. You know? He wasn't himself in the movies. He wasn't. He didn't insert like Spielberg has. They're Spielberg movies. You know, Scorsese movies mm. are Scorsese movies. And Friedkin didn't have that because as you look at his career, I mean, how do you put the director who made The Exorcist alongside the director who made The French Connection? 
and then cruising mm-hmm. and the boys in the band. And I mean, he had such a, a wide array of kinds of films that he could do. We were just talking about mm-hmm. another director like this. I can't remember who it was, but when they're chameleons like that and they kind of disappear behind the movie, even if it's a great movie, even if they win the Oscar, which he did, you know, mm-hmm. you're still not necessarily going to know when you're watching a movie. Oh, this is a Friedkin movie. As opposed mm-hmm. to, you know, when you're watching a Scorsese movie, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. you know it, you know, his style, you know. Did you um, uh, have a I'd love to hear Sasha Stone's uh, exorcist experience. I know that you were, what, 12 or 14 or something around in 73 or something like that. Um, uh, you were just, it was just before your big Jaws moment. And I was just, did you go with your sister? How did you first see so it? So I would have been seven years old. Then. Okay, seven years old. Okay. And uh, the first thing I remember about The Exorcist was it was kind of like Jaws in that everybody had the book. And the book itself was the scariest thing because even though we weren't religious, my mother wasn't, we weren't raised that way. The book had this cover on it before the movie um, wait, no, maybe after the movie. I can't remember. It was right around the same time, but the cover was so scary. And my sister had read the book to us, and we really believed it was true. We believed it's that It's actually everything- rather, rather impressionistic and kind of subtle, as I recall, that, that image you're talking about on the book. Yeah. It was yes. kind of a vague sense of, a, of a, someone's face kind of being covered over yeah. or being going through contortions or something and that, but it had no explicit vibe to it it didn't have a well it was Linda scary Blair. it was scary to us because literally when we were kids the scariest mm-hmm. thing about that movie and it scared me for my entire life and it still scares me and it's the only movie that ever has is mm-hmm. that there was this girl trapped inside this body and that she had written the words help me on the stomach and it, to, to say I'm stuck inside like that was something that we little girls understood to be trapped mm. inside of a because we didn't get the stuff the you know fuck me Jesus <laughs> stuff is <laughs> we didn't get that when we were kids you know it didn't really re- you know that that didn't horrify us that's that's something that horrifies adults but this idea mm-hmm. of this little girl trapped inside that that the spirit had taken her and put her locked her away like poltergeist you know poltergeist when the little girl yeah. is in the and then that's what scared us because that was a thing we could understand or relate to. Um, everybody was scared of that movie, but everybody went to see it, even kids. The uh, thing that um, is unappreciated or largely unappreciated now is that this is one of the scariest, perhaps the scariest film ever ever made. But people don't really uh, acknowledge very much that the about fifty five minutes. For about fifty-five minutes, almost a full hour, it is all about character and mm. uh, milieu, believability. It does not try and jolt you that that much. It gives you little tiny jolts that tell you that something is going to develop and it's going to be creepy, and you can feel it. But it doesn't try and really nail you until just about an hour into it, mm. and it's fascinating because you would n- there's no filmmaker now who works in the in the horror genre who would dare do something like that no people um, require you know in almost you know first 10 minutes 50 they will not sit for an hour waiting for a film to start delivering the goods no but that's what made it so scary because you could believe it was really happening and 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 he did this thing and by the way ridley scott did the same thing with alien 
he used the same kind of thing where he he had a very yeah. serious movie with very serious actors, and then he introduced this horror element, but it only really comes in really strong in the last part, and not even that. It's so understated in the first film compared to Jim Cameron's very overstated version. But with with Exorcist, you know, we had to get to know we we got to know the mother, we got to know the the daughter, the mother's weird career as a as a Hollywood actress, you know. Yeah, um, all of it. It's really just wonderful. One of my favorite moments uh, in the in one of the scariest, creepiest feelings I've ever gotten from The Exorcist is when she hears that kind of slingshot sound coming from the attic. <laughs> you know, it doesn't. You don't know what it is. There's no explanation, but it's it's just a sound that she hears coming from the attic. That is one of the creepiest things I've ever felt from a movie ever because you know something. Uh, very dark and very, uh, you know, unsettling is happening in that attic. Yeah. It doesn't tell you what, but yes. it's really effective. And and the Captain Howdy stuff with the the um, the Ouija board. Yeah. And and what's what's even more interesting? And I was going to do at some point like a series of these these subtly anti-feminist movies, like this one. Anti-feminist. I think okay. this one and Network is another one um, where. Mm-hmm. The, uh, you know, there's the subtle messages behind it, like Faye Dunaway's this empty, but that's much later in the 70s. This was earlier. But the idea in The Exorcist mm. is that it's the divorce of the parents that has brought this child to this vulnerable moment that um, is, and it's not like an overtly feminist movie, but it's just this idea of this working woman who, you know, divorce was just starting to become really po- more popular and accepted in the 70s than it had been prior to that. And there was this undercurrent of the divorce allowed the devil to come inside this girl, the missing father, the the vulnerability of the dad who neglecting her daughter and, um, and the mother who's working all the time, you know, even though the mother and the daughter have this great relationship, which is one of the best I think put on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, but that was to me sort of the, the 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 maybe the unintentional message. I don't know, but of the movie. I think that it, when Blatty wrote the William Peter Blatty wrote the original, I think that he was drawing from what was happening throughout the culture, uh, certainly beginning around the mid sixties, certainly late sixties, which is that uh, a lot of parents who were basically World War II generation people were. Uh, perplexed and flabbergasted and didn't know what to do with what was happening with uh, kids of that era. Where has this kid come from? This is not the kid that I grew, you know, suddenly it was, it was, it was pot, it was hallucinogens, it was long hair, it was all kinds of, you know, things that did not exactly, um, they didn't know where it came from. It seemed like something very, very primal and almost earthquake level was happening. Mm. And I think that he was drawing from that feeling that a lot of people were going through, um, that there is something very bizarre happening in the culture. And there was, you know, it was a there huge was. changeover. Yeah, there really was, was. A, um, a massive change. And then the movie reflects that because all through the 70s, you're seeing evidence of that counterculture movement rising up, the women's movement, the gay rights movement, the black power mm. movement. It's all coming into cinema in different ways, you know. And this was one of the ones that had, you know, the strong single mother, which, you know, believe it or not, was kind of unusual for that time in the early Mm -hmm. 70s. You know, it wasn't something that was as kind of normal 
as it is now, you know. And not not a struggling mom. She was pretty much at the peak of her profession. She was pretty much a movie star, uh, yeah. Chris McNeil. And she was, uh, you know, she was like... Um, she was a, the, very you know. much the empowered 70s woman. Like, yeah. there's a song I know from this play. I forget what it's called. Oh, it was called... I'm 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 taking I'm uh, it was a 70s play about f- empowerment and feminism or something like and mm-hmm. one of the songs was I'm doing my strong woman number or I'm walking with my head held high I'm doing my strong mm-hmm. woman number and that's what she reminds mm-hmm. me of in that like she is a fully empowered woman who doesn't need anything or anyone she makes her own money she has her own success and so yeah. in that way I see it as a critique a slight critique of feminism but she's very, very pissed off at the husband who hasn't. She's furious that he was supposed to call her daughter, their daughter, right, at a, uh, and, and give her, you know, how much she cares for. Her. And there was a, some kind of big thing that she was involved in a horse competition. But he didn't. He didn't stick to the schedule, and she was furious at him, which I, which anybody would be. And it, so it gave that it had that kind of a feeling of a of an. A, actual real relationship it wasn't generic or it wasn't right. cliche it was something that i believed entirely and, and i and i was continuing on that whole metaphor thing of the 70s i don't think that that the exorcist would have worked it would have uh, sunk in as much if it had been released say eight years earlier in 1965 or, or earlier because it wasn't happening that kind of convulsive element was not happening in the culture right. in this in the mid-60s it happened only you know, late sixties and then obviously seventies. So and that's it was why really significant. those some of those like uh, deliverance. You know these these stories that 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 have this some undercurrent of anxiety in them. Like uh, like you say, The Exorcist. It was about the opposite of security. It was about fear, fear of free fall. You know, fear of yeah. of having no tradition to really hold you together. And um, yeah. And it's it's very religious, right? Because obviously, the you know at the end of the movie, Linda Blair, when she's finally healed, she sees a priest, and she runs up to the priest and kisses the priest or something, and she's so grateful for it. And um, that was something that I didn't really come to terms with as I was watching it because we weren't really religious. We didn't put it together. Oh yeah, the devil. Oh yeah, that's religion. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And in some way, mm-hmm. it made me feel a little bit better because I thought, okay, that that ideology is confined to a religion. It doesn't necessarily mean, like, in other words, if you believe in the devil, you kind of have to believe in God. And um, um, yeah, it's kind of a package deal, which is. Um, yeah. But so, I do believe in in gentleness and kindness and caring, and I do believe in. Um, and that uh, a life that doesn't have uh, it isn't centered or in a trust and a faith in in the idea of of love and 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 caring and and really being there for people and showing i understand whatever it is that's making your life difficult i understand that it hurts and i and i think that you know we all need that that mm. caring that gentleness absolutely and that's certainly what i see when i see a, a priest i don't think of the horrible things that have happened with the religion, the institution of Catholicism, particularly the, the sexual molestation stuff, which is horrible. But that that was just a kind of a window in, in the way people saw or felt about, um, about the Catholic faith. And I have then. to say that I, I, after coming through everything that we've just lived through in this, in this country, I feel more uh, lighter and more gentle where it comes to, and more understanding of religion, because now I've seen fanaticism 
that's like a religion, but that doesn't have the safeguards of something that's old, like Christianity or Judaism, or uh, because which they've all factored in human nature, right? So they have path to redemption. They have forgiveness. You know, let he mm. who judge not, lest ye be judged. You know, let he who's never sinned cast the first stone. Love thy neighbor. Yeah. You know, these messages right. are eternal, and they hold humans down. They anchor us as keep us civilized. You know, obviously, I'm not saying that that they're all good all the time, and that there isn't molesting priests or hypocrisy or terrible things done in the name yeah. of religion, religious wars. But mm-hmm. but the religion that we've just been foisted upon us is punitive and full of zealotry without any of those paths to without any way to forgive without any way to redeem yourself except these stupid apologies you know and it's it's the opposite of love thy neighbor it's it's don't love thy neighbor unless thy neighbor agrees with you on everything you know so (laughs) so anyway and but we should talk about linda blair how great she is in that part like i mean really like for a 10 year old or however old she was like that was pretty amazing that she made that um and it is in her voice obviously but she's still really good in the movie i completely have never had a slightest uh problem with believing anything that she says or goes through but it's again it's the way it's very gradually developed i mean her if you want to call it a psychosis or possession, but it's a bit by bit um, um, accumulation. And uh, one of the favorite moments that I have with it is just this, when you hear the thing coming from the attic and you can see her lying in bed with her eyes wide open, she's staring at something. And you can just sense that, you know, things, something has uh, come into her soul, into her system. And you don't know what it is, and I, I've always resisted the idea of simplistic idea of just you know something truly demonic but the amazing thing about that film is that you really are convinced that there's something uh, tangible and real and active and it's an energy force and it's about demonic horror and it's it's really amazing the way it makes you uh, allows you to believe in that uh, even uh, absolutely the the, and know. i'm i still can't watch it because after I had a, a girl, a daughter, and I raised her, and my relationship with her was so close, I, I couldn't go through that movie. Mm. Um, mm. You know, where she, like, you know, to the, see the, the, the graphic scene where she, like, pushes her mother's face into her bloody crotch. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay, mm. so they would never make the movie today, obviously, needless to say. It would never be. What, what's so fascinating about this time, as we're talking about these, these ra- counterculture revolution, there was also this. A thrusting of forward of young children into these semi-adult roles like Linda Blair and the exorcist is a good example of that. Nobody thought, mm. Oh, she shouldn't be saying these words or, you know, they back then, and maybe the conservative Christians thought this, but certainly not on the left. They never thought, don't take your kid to see the exorcist. You know, they just took us mm. to see the exorcist. So they just, they raised us differently. But then you also had Tatum O'Neill and paper moon who actually won the Oscar over Linda Blair and then you mm, had like mm. Brooke Shields and Pretty Baby. You know, you had these kids coming up in these strange and that that's an odd mark of that era that that you don't see today and you haven't seen in a while, you know. Um, mm. kids and because after that, after the blockbuster, Hollywood turned into this kid factory, you know, like it started aiming its product at kids and creating this 
Spielberg world of childhood, you know, this magical childhood. And that really yeah. wasn't, I mean, it might have been there in the 1950s with like Leave it to Beaver, but it wasn't there in the 70s. It was gone for sure because you wouldn't have these movies otherwise. Those kind of movies don't mm. exist in a Steven Spielberg world. Pretty Baby, Paper Moon, you know, where they're just growing up really fast. And that's the era I grew up in. And that's why you and I have mm. different opinions of the whole Roman Polanski thing than most people do. Because we remember the 70s. I certainly remember the 70s in California. Yeah. You, know? you and I, you're, you're saying, are, are in, the, in the minority as far as Polanski is concerned because we understand or recall the, the, the sensibilities, the vibes, the way people thought about things. They didn't have that hard condemning uh, thing in their heads that they do now. And, um, and I've, I've pretty much given up on trying to make any arguments with people about about Polanski. But, and whenever I bring up, for instance, the, um, the fact that he... Well, listen, there are some... I don't want to get off this and, and, and sidestep out of a uh, freaking, but in fact, I won't. Let's not. Let's, All right, we, we can start a whole thing here. But yeah, we don't want to really get. We don't want to get. So. We don't want to get death threats again. Let's just stay yeah. off the subject. Um, yeah. Okay, so French Connection. The, you know, so what do you? Isn't it funny that we didn't we didn't jump into the into his Oscar winner? We jumped into the film that I think touched people in a in a in a much more in a much deeper more more profound way because the French Connection was a excellent genre film but it didn't really you know not aiming to reach inside and touch you intimately on some emotional level it was strictly an exercise film that was absolutely brilliant in the way it was assembled and put together well what do you um, think about this whole French Connection situation do you think that his legacy has now been <laughs> Upended, or do you think that it doesn't matter? Or it certainly has been. It certainly has been, and, it, and it's a shame that he never addressed it. And it's now, I guess, what I'm starting to get is that he was uh, ill and and not in, in in good shape the last few months, as is often the case when your body starts to shut down. And uh, but he didn't. Uh, he, he should have addressed it. He really should have. And, and why he didn't is well, nobody will ever know. But I think it'd be safely assumed that those in his inner circle, his friends, his people, you know, uh, who are you know his his wife, Cherry, uh, whoever, they're not going to address this anymore. They're not going to uh, <clears throat> they're not going to sully his name further by saying yes, it was his call. My my suggestion, which I just wrote about twenty minutes ago, is that. Um, Basically, uh, that the the smart thing, the the compassionate thing on the part of say uh, Disney, or you know, if keepers of freaking, I'll just read this: if keepers of freaking's legacy want to do the right thing, they'll push for the restoration of that censored French Connection scene and erase all copies of the edited bullshit 2021 version, which is what what is streaming now. Not in the Europe, by the way, only in this country. If the Disney guys have any decency, they'll just forget about the whole matter. They'll say, look, Friedkin was in his late 80s, and censoring that scene was completely out of character for a guy known for his ballsiness and obstinacy. So let's just forget it happened and restore the footage and be done with it. Just let it go. Because that would be the decent thing, because there's never been a major director who has ever uh, advocated or perhaps even initiated uh, the censoring of a scene of 
arguably his, you know, one of his, obviously one of his great films that won the best, you know, it's never happened before. And hopefully it never happens again, but it was a terrible thing to, um, to, for it, because, it, you know, what, is there someone else who's going to do this and, you know, capitulate to the woke forces and decide that, it, you know, maybe if I cut something out that they don't like, uh, maybe it'll be better overall. That's a terrible thing to say, but. Well, I mean, they've been going through all kinds of books, you know, to to change them and, you know, to to appeal, you know, appeal to what they believe the new generation will accept or won't accept. In other words, William Friedkin thinks, if I edit this out, then maybe Gen Z will watch my movie and see how great it was. But the the only problem with that is that and and or and or he might think they're going to watch this and they're going to hear that word and they're going to think I was a racist and they're not going to ever want to watch the movie and they're you know it's going to be a lot of movies mm. they're going to have to do that with. I was just watching The Shining of all. <laughs> the Shining has mm. a scene where they're in the you know he's in the bathroom with with the guy and and he's you know he says the n word repeatedly. Both of them do. And mm. so, you know, what are they going to do? Cut that out? And one of those movies that people love is everybody who watches it going to be a racist now? Or can you understand? That's right. That, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, or can you understand that these are characters who say these words at a time in yeah. history when people said these words? And do you really want to forget that? Right. That's what Orwell's 1984 is, is so such an important book, because it really does make that point. Do you really want to forget these things? That mm-hmm. people were. Do you really want to erase the truth of who people were and what we all lived through? Is that really where we're going to go yeah. as a society and to what end? You know, it's, nothing's ever going to be good enough. The, sooner or later, the goal, the goalposts are already moving with pronouns, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. So, for instance, I was just watching, we're not going to take a detour, just really briefly, uh, To Kill mm-hmm. a Mockingbird the other day. Mm-hmm. And To Kill a Mockingbird, great movie. Scout is a tomboy. Now, are they going to, yeah. at some point, decide that Scout is a transgender character? And then... They, would, they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do that. Well, they might. Would they? Yeah, they <laughs> seriously might. It's such a common aspect of, of, of life for the 20th century, for the 19th century. I mean, for young girls to be tomboyish, I mean, are they going to try and fiddle with that definition? That, that's disease, truly a disease uh, <laughs> age we're living in. I am going to I've type it tom- in. I knew tomboys when I was a kid. You knew them. It, it was just a, a normal part of, uh, you know, the developmental period that some girls go through. It was just fascinating. And um, I always have a kind of a warm feeling about women that I knew when they were eight or nine or 12 years old, whatever. I just, I'm just astonished that people would want to. Well, I did. I just, I just searched it and I searched scout to kill a mockingbird transgender. And I found a lot of, um, stories here, but not from mainstream media, Mm -hmm. more like from Tumblr. And, you know, there's a, a story from 2009 called To Queer a Mockingbird. <laughs> to Queer a Mockingbird. Oh, wonderful. That sounds great. <laughs> and then Goodreads, a scout transgender. Uh, mm. And then did Harper Lee need a Saints? Like, this is just nuts. But uh, she was obviously, Harper Lee was obviously gay. 
and um, you know, living in the South at a time when it wasn't acceptable. She was definitely a gay woman, um, but that doesn't make her trans people. Uh, I'm not- I didn't know. Not that it matters one way or the other, but I didn't never actually thought of it whether she was a uh, gay or not. But that's fine, you know. I mean, uh, she was. Um, I, I know. Think of her personally, mo- mostly for her friendship with Truman Capote, which yeah, exactly. began back then in yeah. gentle years. I I um, became totally obsessed with her at one point. Um, I even mm-hmm. went to Alabama to see her house. You did. Really? Yeah, I sure did. That- yeah, I got became wow. obsessed with the whole thing. I went down the whole rabbit hole of To Kill a Mockingbird, Truman Capote, her childhood, you know, the whole thing. Mm. And, and because she's fascinating because she's such a recluse. Um, uh, when she was alive, yeah. she was nobody knew her, nobody saw her, nobody talked to her, except a few people. Her life is such a mystery. And she only wrote that one book. And then she wrote a follow-up book, I'm pretty sure, that got published that I also got and read. Um, but I, I came out of that period concluding, yeah, she was definitely had to be a gay woman who was, yeah, mm, you know, in a town and mm. in a place where she definitely could not have been. Just like uh, Lizzie Borden was also a gay woman and at a time when she couldn't be um, gay. So anyway, mm. I think mm. that's. But I think it's it's a stretch. I'm not saying we should sit here and get upset that people are saying Scout is transgender. It's so it's so obscure these stories that there's no. Mm. There's no point in getting upset about it. Nobody's coming out and saying it. You know what I mean? I'm not trying to mm. insinuate that we should sit here and get all upset about that. <laughs> uh, it was just a brief, a brief feeling that I had in my, in my chest when you said that. But I, but I, I, I um, I'm fine. I'm not upset. I'm fine. I'm, I'm able to to, to, to roll with it. But I, um, to get back to freaking just yes. for a second. Uh, and we were talking about how the you know the the last thing that happened was this whole French connection thing. Uh, I wanted to um, also just say that I that I really uh, admire and have had uh, excellent times with the uh, watching of, of Sorcerer, which I thought was uh, one of, really one of one of the most thrilling films I saw at that period, and I was much more a fan of that film. In '77, that I um, then I was a frankly Star Wars, or you know, it was just a, a film that really, really plays well, and I was I love the the texture of it, and I love the the way it summoned the the feeling of uh, of that tropical hell that the, that Roy Scheider was living in, and all the main characters. I thought it was um, uh, you know beautifully shot, and I, I just thought you can feel the. The, the, the intensely strenuous effort that they had to go through to, to make this, and it's the kind of filmmaking that I that really really excites me more primarily than anything in the fantasy genre. And it's just too bad that uh, that it didn't do better. I don't think it was an absolute failure financially, but it was an underwhelming response. Uh, but it, it certainly plays well. It certainly has aged well. Mm. So I think it's an excellent, uh, excellent uh, um, uh, feather in his cap. I have to correct things. something uh, okay. because your readers, some of your readers are probably sitting there fuming because they're saying Harper Lee was not gay. Uh, okay. Indeed, I'm looking at an article written in 2016 where she, it's never addressed in any biographies about her, but there is a, a letter she wrote to somebody in 2009 that says, 
I'm not even remotely gay, Harper Lee. Okay. So we have to take her at her word. She's not. Sure. You know, some people are just not that, uh, uh, don't feel defined by their sexuality. Some people are just kind of like. Yeah, maybe uh, she's the A. You know? She's the A in LGBTQIA. What's A? A is asexual. <laughs> oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> and and I also, I thought I could have sworn that when um, the 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 Q was added, people say, "Oh no, that's that means stands for queer." And I thought, "Okay, all right." But why is there a G and a Q? <laughs> uh, queer is just a, a new, you know, the more intense, the more the prouder uh, a letter that, that signifies, you know, the. You know, gay culture in a more kind of militant sense, but um, you don't need. No, to and I. If you have. I got. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I actually lost a lot of readers on my site. I think commenters, not readers. I don't know if I lost readers, but commenters. Mm-hmm. When I said that I wasn't going to say LGBTQIA anymore, I was just going to say the mm-hmm. gay the gay community. And the thing is, I'd be happy to say LGBT, but at the moment, I feel like the T community needs to back off of women and I think they need to be a little more respectful and I think they need to deal with this gender affirming care issue and once they do that Mm -hmm. I would be happy to add the T back on I don't even know if I need to add B on there to tell you the truth why should people who are bisexual get any sort of protective they're not marginalized or oppressed gay people yeah sure lesbians Mm. and gay people I would say okay they've had historically not bi people you know, yeah. and, and asexual and interesting. I'm going to add all these people into this long list of people who've been oppressed. Asexual mm-hmm. people are not oppressed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're just not. Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll go mm-hmm. with gay and I'll go with lesbian and I will I will add trans once I feel like they, they become a much more responsible community. Now, mm-hmm. I, I will separate out the actual real trans people who are just out there living their lives who aren't trying to enter spaces by women who aren't trying to take over women's sports who aren't in this fanatic religion that we're, we're all dealing with. And there are a lot of them, like my daughter's friends, for instance, and plenty of, you know, plenty of transgender people are just out there being transgender people living their lives. You know, they're not trying to change the world. You know, who who feels anything other than just live and let live? Everybody believes that. No one is that I, I've never ever run to into has ever voiced or even implied any kind of, you know, bigoted attitudes about trans people. No, I mean, you know, the only negative that's come up is the whole kids thing, the mutilation thing. The uh, that's the that's the issue that people don't yeah, like. And mainly I mainly that mainly that. But, but there's also a you know, kind of a bullying from trans women, men who become women, the bullying of women, calling them TERFs and stuff. And I don't like that right. at all. Saying, oh, we'll punch him in the face or we'll threaten violence or... Um, yeah. Okay, so what else do we got to say about William Friedkin that we're... Anything else? Uh, just that he... Um he was a great uh, interview, and he was oh, and he was out there. The last time I physically was in the same space with him was at the Vista Theater, which has uh, since been bought by Quentin Tarantino, uh, the one that's in um, um, you know East, East Los Angeles. And he came to a very late showing, maybe eleven o'clock. It started of uh, the Babadook, 
He was a huge fan of that film, which I am also as well. One oh, of the, wow. It's one of the uh, great high-end, um, you know, uh, horror thrillers of, a, of, of the century, certainly. Mm. And he just came in and just did a spiel for about 10, 15 minutes about how he feels that um, the director, uh, the Australian director, whose name naturally is flown out of my head, but it'll come back to me. Anyway, it was just, she, he was, uh, he, I just loved his um, his enthusiasm about, about wanting to, you know, praise films that deserve praise, and and he, he was very uh, loquacious, and and uh, he he really felt it. He was a he was a good fellow, and I and I really mm. was glad to to be there and listen to him and ask questions and the whole thing. Um, he had been partying that night. He decided to just you know stop his activity and come by the Vista to, to give some support to Jennifer Kent. That's her name, Jennifer Kent. Yeah, and. Uh, he was a he's a good fellow, and I, I met him a couple times personally at his office, and got to know him a little bit. He was a uh, you know a very uh, uh, dynamic uh, you know trooper fellow, and he was known as Hurricane Billy because of his uh, called uh, bellicose, uh, bombastic, uh, very uh, he's not a passive personality in any sense of that of that term and um that's why he was called hurricane billy and he mm. was uh, one of the great personalities of of uh, of the of 20th century cinema and uh, you know he, he got it in his own way i guess uh, he had some adversarial relationships here and there but most people who are committed who really care about their craft uh, they're not uh, days at the beach many of them so we all know how that goes uh, I just couldn't get that thrilled or that excited about his films after 85. But the, that period, that 15-year period, even The Brinks Job, which I think is a very charming little Boston crime film, kind of a family crime film. There's a hugely uh, a funny scene in Deal of the Century that I've never forgotten. It has uh, Gregory Hines dealing with... Um, some people that get very angry at him, and he's trying to be a, a good Christian, and he's um, saying, "Hey, man, let's let's not have any. You know, we don't. I don't. We don't need to do this. You know, you're cool. I'm cool. Don't worry about it." And these Latino, this Latino couple, they're very angry at something that he's done. Maybe they bam, bump fenders or whatever. And he's saying, "Oh, man, don't do this." And the guy takes out a switchblade and he shoves it into Gregory Hines' tire. And Gregory Hines is trying so hard to be, you know, a good person, a, a Christian person. He truly believes he's, he's born again. He sees himself in that light. And he, he finally snaps and he takes out a flamethrower that he has in the trunk of his car. And he says, all right, man, you know, mm. <laughs> I, mean, I think what you need, what your car needs is a little touch up. And he takes out the flamethrower and flames the entire thing it's it's all about rage and anger but it's one of the funniest things i I can recall from that era and that was like 83 i think well that um, was i mean it was was kind of a downshifting you know a little bit of a minor film but it was funny do you have any any memories of exorcist or french connection of of what it was like to you know see those movies for the first time in Westwood, I was at a, you know, like everybody else, you have to kind of stand in line for a whole show because you thought you might be able to get in if you came early. And we realized that we were so far back in the line and we waited for so long. And then we were told, no, we can't get into the upcoming yeah. show. You have to wait until the 10 p.m. show. Or, you know, I, I did, went through all that. And I recall distinctly 
having a view of I was at the National Theater, which is uh, was torn down. But I remember seeing people coming out of the doors of, in, you know, the first people coming out. And I remember catching a glance at a guy who was like, going, oh, my God, <laughs> he, was, he was really going through a kind of a hyperventilating. Like that was like you could just tell these people had been through something really intense. And there was, a, a you know, it was common back then for people to. um you know, there was there were people waiting to see it, not just for hours, but in bad weather. Uh, there was a story about Friedkin himself having bought coffees for people out of uh, you know sympathy for their being in line for so long. Uh, I swear to God that I was again National Theater. I swear to God that I, I think that he was actually there. I remember saying, "It looks like Billy Friedkin. It must is is it? I'm not going to say anything and be a." be a you know a jerk but i but i was i swore that that was him mm. and i it was kind of a very vivid powerful you know time i said this is this kind of connection happens very infrequently and the only time it happens is, is we're experiencing it right now with barbie people are really uh you know connecting with that film they're not uh, exactly it's, it's that's just so amazing you know? that you say that because i was just thinking mm. about how after The Exorcist, all the jokes were about pea soup, pea soup, because everybody said she vomited. Of all the things that people took from that movie for some reason, it was the vomiting, the projectile vomiting of the pea soup that people remembered the most and talked about the most. Um, mm-hmm. It was in everything. It was they were constantly joking about it. You know, it's it's gone way. It's 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 way out of our our culture now. Nobody ever would talk about it or bring it up, but. I was thinking about that in terms of Barbie. Barbie seems to have seeped into every part of our culture in a way that movies used to, but don't anymore. And it's pretty yeah. incredible, actually. I have to give her credit for that. People are, it's it's a source of debate. It's a source of, of disagreements. It's a source of controversy. It's a source of joy. It's all these things, this movie, bringing up. I don't know if you read that Constantine Kissin review that I sent you. I did. I read it. I read it. And he, I'm not saying he's wrong or right, but... Um, uh, I I mean I'm really glad that a film is uh, even though I I feel the same way that others do I feel that it's uh, you know I mean I I just put it aside I know that it's uh, I don't think there's any question that the term misandry a misandrous current a, a loathing a contempt for for half of the population of this of the world because of its uh, attitude about guys and and characterizing them as uh, pathetic little boys who have no uh, real power or clarity in their heads. Uh, but that's just, you know, I just figured, okay, that's the take, you know. What's important is that the movie has really, really uh, gotten under people's skin and, and, and lifted their hearts and made them feel enthusiastic about going to see it. And the whole thing, I mean, just when I went to see, when we went to get ice cream last weekend, I saw this little tip jar and one the one was said Barbie on it, and the other said, yeah. um, you know, Oppenheimer. I was really just, this is exciting, and I wish this happened more. And I, I do, and too. I hope I, it happens again. I just want to say that, um, okay, well, we should announce, that people probably already know, but Barbie crossed the billion-dollar mark internationally, and it's at $450 million. And um, mm. Oppenheimer's right behind, you know, not too far behind with 200-something um Two hundred and twenty-eight million, and shockingly, mm-hmm. both of us are shocked by this. Dead Reckoning is only at one hundred and fifty-one million, and Dial of Destiny is only at 
170 million. Like they, that's shocking news, but it's it shows you just what we're talking about with the exorcist and with uh, um, French Connection. We're showing you how those movies burst onto the scene and gave people things that they they hadn't seen before. The Exorcist was something. Barbie is something people haven't seen before. They haven't seen yeah. a movie about Barbie that that has been tweaked to turn into something kind of weird and subversive. You know, mm-hmm. they want to know why why everybody's talking about it. You know, and, and that's that's not easy to do. You know what I mean? To create a movie that. I think Mm -hmm. um, I'll just say this really quickly before moving on to my next point, which is that I think if you look at Barbie literally and you take it literally, you come to the Constantine Kissin conclusion. If you take it all 100% literally, and then that's the only uh, conclusion. And I I read you the, I sent you the one paragraph, and I'll just read it here of what he writes that I think is is brilliant. Uh, He says, quote, no, I don't have it. Sorry, hang on a second. It's the wrong paragraph I sent you. Oh, I can't find. I ran. It. I ran a summary for what it's worth. He said. Can he you read the paragraph people. that I sent you about feminism? Well, what I did was that I condensed it down to like five paragraphs, and I don't know that I necessarily respected with the paragraph that you were. But basically, I said that um, if you're talking about the cats. And and the wine, <laughs> that 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 paragraph. You, oh, he mean, says this quote: "No one tells okay. her that what awaits her at the conclusion of her journey of empowerment is cats, wine, and misery. Why would they? Oh, yeah, Feminists yeah. want other women to make the same mistakes they did. Misery loves company. And I I told you I agreed with that because mm. I talked about it in our podcast last time. I think mm. he's saying that that's not the road to happiness and it's a trap and i can pro- i can attest to that it is a trap trust me it is mm-hmm. don't go down i mean do whatever you want but if you want to be happy that's not the way to do it um it, you will end up despairing and emptied out of spirit if you don't have women aren't men women aren't men women have different needs yeah. and different women need to to feel like they matter that they're doing good for other people and in the world. And if you're only serving yourself, that's never going to happen. You're going to be destroying culture, you know, to try to make it better, to try to fix it. When, when in reality, you really just need something to fill you with a good sense of purpose that does good in the world uh, beyond serving yourself. Anyway, all of that said, I think that what's funny about Barbie is that you're really looking at the movie from the prism of this sort of Barbie universe. I don't think that they're necessarily mm-hmm. saying that America is a patriarchy like that and that everybody acts like that. I think it's more like in from Ken's perspective, from the Barbie perspective, from the naive perspective, that's how it looks to them. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, she's obviously delivering a feminist message without, without a doubt. But I think there's yeah. enough in there that like the Kens being, you know, sympathetically portrayed and funny in their dance number, you know. Um, there's mm-hmm. just there's a lot going on in the movie that that I appreciate. I like the fact that it sparked discussion, you know, and that people are yeah. actually trying to analyze it and put its place and how you have these divergent views from Ben Shapiro all the way over to, you know, people who love mm-hmm. it. It's just it's interesting. Anyway, um did you have something more to the, uh, say on that? Because I wanted to, 
I wanted to move on to the box office of 1973. So, but if you want to still continue on that, no, please tell me, tell me what you what what about the box office of 73? You're comparing the with the actual numbers were. I was I was of, uh, yeah because of that time, The Exorcist was number one. The Exorcist made. <laughs> In 1973, 193 million. Which prior to Jaws, that was a lot of money. And so yeah. the top five in 1973, Exorcist came out on December 26, the day after Christmas. That they have some balls releasing it <laughs> during Christmas. Um, and the sting. Yeah, when you think about it, they, they probably just had it ready, and they figured, well, let's. You know, this is when people go to the movies, so let's let's put it out now. Even though, yes, there's certainly something uh, audacious about releasing a film about demonic possession during a Christmas holiday, but that was uh, that was part of the genius of the whole thing, I guess. And not so. to yet again drive the point home that movies were so much better there. Let me read you the top box office movies of that year: The Exorcist, yeah. The Sting, American Graffiti, Papillon, The Way We Were. Magnum Force, Live and Let Die, Robin Hood, Paper Moon, Serpico, Jesus Christ Superstar, The World's Greatest mm. Athlete, which I actually really liked, Enter the Dragon, Sleeper, A Touch of Class, The Day of the Jackal, High Plains Drifter, High Plains Drifter and Magnum Force, The Last Detail, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, Westworld, Lost Horizon, The Day of the Dolphin, Jonathan Livingston Siegel. Now, I'm just going to say that we are in a creative desert compared to 1973. Compared to that. Absolutely. I wish we weren't, but that was a uh, embarrassment of riches for a uh, for all the films that were happening back then. And it was... Um, I mean, I was just thinking about how much I I love watching The Day of the Jackal. Um, I watch it every year because it's so nicely, sublimely assembled. It's just mm. really engrossing. You know every step of it. There's no. It's, it's the craft of it is so assuring, uh, and and confident, and yet not heavy-handed. Uh, and, the, and the last detail. I mean, there are so many. I could go on and on. I know. And this is my whole childhood. Like, my movie awakening yeah. was sitting, I mean, other than Jaws later, but I remember sitting with my friend's family watching Sleeper and being too young to really understand it, but looking it up at all these people laughing at this movie and looking at the movie and not understanding any of it, but thinking, wow, that's that must be a really funny movie. And of course, I remember Paper mm -hmm. Moon, and we all remembered Paper Moon. American Graffiti was was a huge movie with us. We loved it because my stepfather loved it. My dad took me to mm -hmm. see Bruce Lee movies, Enter the Dragon. Um, you know, it's just, it was so, all of these movies were seeped into our culture. Westworld, you know, you had to see them. You had to see them so you could talk about them. And Westworld is a relatively minor film, but it's a very well-crafted film, and I've watched that repeatedly. No, that's a cult. Uh, and, that's a cult classic by now. Westworld, yeah. the, the old one, not the new new one. Mm. The puzzle box uh, endlessly. They, 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 this, the 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 HBO series that refused to end and just kept going and going. Uh, boy, I I I, I kind of really got lost my uh, interest in that thing pretty early on, even before the first season. I don't know how long you lasted with that, but that no, was... No, I don't. Um, I, I, I am... 
I need to find smarter movies and stuff. Like, I, I feel like this has been a good summer for Barbie and Oppenheimer have sort of given me some, and I even think Mission Impossible, and I like the fact that Sound of Freedom is in the mix, and I like mm-hmm. that there are movies that people are going to see and that they're excited. I'm very excited that people are excited about Barbie. You know, that, that makes me really yeah. happy to yeah. see that. Um, but I, I, when you go ahead, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I was going to bring it down a little mm. bit into a more somber mood, which is the strike is really going to kind of dampen all of this. And I really didn't think about it until just the other day. I thought about Telluride and Venice yeah. And uh, I thought about how much they need actors to push these movies and how it's just going to flatten the tires of Oscar season, that they're not around. Not going to be doing any campaigning. And there there doesn't seem to be anything in the way of of optimism about the possibility. I mean, we did mention last time we spoke about the the scenario that... um, that Richard Rushfield mentioned about it'll probably come to an end sometime around October or mm. November uh, without anything too dramatic. It's just that they, you know, there'll be a slight nudge from one of the parties, possibly from the producers. And you know, I, I just, he said it'll, it seemed believable what he was suggesting that it'll that it probably will be over before the end of the year, but it's not going to be over before the festivals begin. So we're going to see a very uh, a very subdued uh, Telluride, I regret to say. And by the way, we were talking about likely best picture um, contenders, and I really do want to just reiterate that I am very, very uh, enthused about the idea of Alexander Payne's film, which will be Telluride. And that's a nice thing to look forward to, and uh, good good performances and an excellent uh, role for Paul Giamatti, and uh, it just sounds like it like it really works. I mean, I'm basing this not upon uh, any speculative thing, but about uh, some actual comments that came from exhibitors uh, during Toronto of 22 uh, last September. So that was there was a lot of enthusiasm. And there was it was such a level of enthusiasm that there was some brief uh, uh, speculation that maybe they want to rush it out and and you know put it in the theaters by the end of twenty two. But uh, cooler heads prevailed, and uh, the people at Focus wanted time to build it up. So you know that's that's it's going to be what sometime in October or something. Uh, not too late in the season. So that I'm looking very much forward to. And I can't mm. understand how people can seriously uh, speculate that there would be. I know there's going to be Best Picture nominations for Barbie, but I just it's just something about that film that um, disturbs me that there would be you know would win Best Picture. But I understand the the enthusiasm because of what it, of the of the chord that it struck culturally and with 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 you know. Uh, moviegoers so that that I get but I don't think it's um, quite profound enough to to be uh, a best picture thing but then again uh, let's be frank about my sensibilities and and uh, I was I was flabbergasted and 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 depressed by uh, everything everywhere all at once winning and I wouldn't be surprised you know I mean, that's, that's exactly I, I, I like Barbie Barbie a whole lot more than that film so well, I was you know, talking with my friend yesterday about it, and I was 
for the first time, I was thinking there's a good chance this movie could win, and I'll tell you why. So the the Oscars that already wins Walking in the Door, it's going to be production design, hair and makeup, costumes, the probably best song, either Billie Eilish or the Just Ken song. One of those two are going to be up. So that that's already a haul, a huge haul of Oscars that's going to win. Yeah. Because it's just such a phenomenon to have a movie like that directed by a woman that is such a unique vision of hers. And to mm-hmm. have it do what Top Gun Maverick did last year, to have it be this ang- this yeah. thing that is saving Hollywood again, saving the box mm-hmm. office, and have it be such a delightful... Like, for instance, put it this way. They could do worse than to, not, to have a movie like that win with a whole public engaged. They're all going to watch the show. They'll watch the Oscars. That's true. If it's yeah. Barbie. And it will, you know, it'll inevitably lead to a backlash because voters will say, God, we gave that movie best picture. But, you know, I've been making the case that big, big movies like that should win for so long that I couldn't just turn around and say, oh, but every movie except Barbie, you know, why Mm -hmm. shouldn't it win? And the thing is, is my friend was saying, well, she's never going to win best director. And I was thinking she might. And he said, well, Christopher Nolan's going to win. I said, no, he's not because he's a white guy. Some yeah. white guy. No, yeah, I agree with that. And, and I don't yeah. think they want to celebrate. They just don't want to celebrate a white man. They just don't have the hunger for it right now. They want to make change. They want to see change be made. They want progress. The thing I realized the about... The no white guys thing, how long has that been going on? The no white guys, you know, white guys have to be subdued. We don't want to have too well, much it, celebration. As here, you know, it started in t- 2016. It started with Trump, really, because... La La Land mm. was suddenly a racist movie, so Moonlight had to win. Damien Chazelle was the last white male to win Best Director, just on his own. Yeah. The other half of Everything Everywhere is white. And then you mm. had the next year, um, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, called racist and smeared out of the race. Shape of Water mm. won Picture Director. And then the next year was the Green Book debacle. Green Book, where... Yeah, Green Book won yeah. Best Picture, but it didn't win Best Director. It wasn't uh, nominated for Best Director, but that was the last movie to win that was directed by a white man. Green Book, and it caused such a right. major apocalypse that we had a foreign language film winning in 2019, uh, Nomadland mm-hmm. winning in 2020, Coda winning in 2021, and Everything Everywhere All at Once winning in 2022. Yeah. So that shows you a pattern of. Um, what kind of movies they want to win. And Barbie is, for them, the Mm. best of all possible worlds. Just like Everything Everywhere was, too. It made money at the box office. It's woke. It's, you know, progressivism, the thing I figured out about it now, is that it really is an invasive species. Like, it has to keep going. It has to keep going until it takes over. It's not, they can't just stay still. They have to keep moving forward. Um, right, and and right. that's where they are right now. There's, they have no reason to award Oppenheimer. You know that they won't. But um, there's other movies oh, coming the out. There's other movies. We should say that there are going to be other movies. But if Barbie keeps burning up the box office like this, it's going to be like Titanic. It's going to be too big to ignore. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, incidentally, uh, Alberto Barbera, the Venice Film Festival, said that um, Fincher's film, uh, The Killer, will screen as a world premiere on September 3rd. 
which means that Telluride is an impossibility. Mm. So that's not going to happen either. So I don't know what Telluride has left, but it seems to be really like, you know, the Alexander Payne film aside, I'm not really getting a lot of... um, I mean, the the films that I would really like to see can't be shown for political reasons. Uh, they won't show the Polanski, of course. The Woody Allen, of course, can't be seen because he's a, a persona non grata with the Wokesters. So that's out. And um, my my favorite film from Cannes, which is uh, called the the the, Pot of Fieu, the, um, the the wonderful foodie movie that I thought was delightful. I don't know what's happening with that, but I got a feeling that's not going to show up either for whatever stupid reason, possibly because IFC Films doesn't can't afford to go to there. They're 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 very cash poor and they're in kind of a tough spot. So maybe they they are, are keeping it out of the whole fall thing because they don't want to. Um, because it's pretty expensive to take a film to Telluride and, and take your talent. They can't take no actors, of course, but the uh, but the director and whomever else. I mean, I don't know what the motive would be, but they've got a real winner, and I'm not getting a feeling that they're going to bring that to the to TIFF or or Telluride or, or you know not not Venice, of course, it's already been to Cannes. But I'm very just disappointed in general about Telluride, and I'm very sorry that it's not. That the films that I want to see, at least, are not going to be there. So it's too bad. Well, the Fincher included. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I feel bad for them having to open these movies like The Killer yeah. without Michael Fassbender walking the carpet. You know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, David Fincher's kind of a star in and of himself, but that's that's a sort of a damp way to for all these movies. You know, remember last year, Brendan, Brendan Fraser's whole whole campaign was made on the fact that he got a standing ovation at Venice. Venice, yeah. And so I feel like that this this is something really important for actors that they're going to miss out on that they they can't be there, they can't do interviews, they can't. That's what I've it's heard shame. that they can't even show up at the festivals. You know what? What I can say was was a great degree of certainty. I'm never going to watch The Whale ever again. <laughs> I felt that I got it, you know, but I'll never watch that again. Well, I don't uh, think you read my column on Best Actor, <laughs> but I basically made the... Uh, yeah, on, on last okay. Thursday. And it okay. basically shows the trajectory of the strong man when I first started, which is Russell Crowe in Gladiator, a hero, um, all the way to the end where it's... The whale. It's um, Brendan mm-hmm. Fraser and the whale, the weakest, most broken down, suicidal man yeah. who's who's gay. Yeah. And if you look mm-hmm. at all the winners after Russell Crowe, you can start to see the change in the male protagonist, which I have to lay on how our culture changed as the rise of Obama. Like it went from these sort of weakened male heroes we look at best actor and then you get to the obama era and it really does become these do-gooder types you know but Mm. but not strong men not alpha men it's people like matthew mcconaughey in dallas buyers club um you know that kind of thing where it's it's they're starting to so you go from Russell Crowe, then you get Denzel Washington training day, okay, he's sort of a badass. 
Then you get Adrian Brody and the pianist. Okay, fine. And then Sean Penn and Mystic River, also a badass. Jamie Foxx, a big celebrity. Philip Seymour Hoffman as Capote. Forrest Whitaker as Last King of Scotland. Daniel Day-Lewis as There Will Be Blood. Okay. These are complicated. Some of them anti-heroes. And then things start to change when Obama takes office. Now we have Sean Penn and Milk. We have Jeff Bridges and Crazy Heart. Broken Down Old Singer. We have Colin Firth, The King's Speech, Jean Dujardin, The yeah. Artist, Daniel Day-Lewis, Lincoln, Matthew McConaughey, Dallas Buyers Club, Eddie Redmayne, The Theory of Everything, Leonardo DiCaprio, The Revenant, that's a little bit more complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Casey yeah. Affleck, mm-hmm. Manchester by the Sea, Broken Down Man, Gary Oldman, Darkest Hour, Rami Malek, Bohemian Rhapsody, and then the only anti-hero in the bunch is Joaquin Phoenix as Joker. And then you get yeah. Anthony Hopkins, the father, Will Smith, King Richard, and Brendan Fraser, the whale. So you're seeing in this era these very, uh, what's the word, vulnerable, sort of imperfect, but but heroic men, um, as opposed to like a Russell Crowe in Gladiator. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. That we just don't have yeah. those kinds of winners, really. The strong, mighty men, you know. Um, I yeah, think that... Yeah, sort of, uh, you know, the, the person goes through the struggle and comes out at the end of the struggle with some uh, degree of, uh, you know, either self-recognition or acknowledgement of, of, you know, some kind of climactic emotional moments. Even though I was just talking about how, uh, you know, I had this discussion with... Uh, with Jet about uh, how he doesn't like Tony Curtis's character and some like it hot, and he kind of frowns upon the the toxicity of such a uh, character because he's selfish and he's a user and he's exploited. But I say, well, it's interesting when a person is 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 not a, an admirable character, but they come to some moment of recognition. They attain that moment. They they come to the realization that they have um, they, they they need to admit that they had not been the nicest, uh, kindest, gentlest person. Uh, and when they admit that, there's a, there's a kind of catharsis when that happens, when they, really, when they say to themselves and to the audience that they are, uh, you know, it's like, it's like when um, Michael Corleone uh, in Godfather 2, Al Pacino, when he, he's all alone at the very end. That's a cathartic moment when you realize that this guy has made his bed and he is lying in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a that's a kind of a fascinating you know that's that's it's satisfying even though he's not he's obviously a shell of a human being and not a very nice person, but he realizes who he is and what well kind yeah of life exactly he's made. and like yeah. characters like for instance um, uh, Anthony Hopkins Silence of the Lambs Jeremy Irons Reversal of Fortune Michael Douglas yeah. Wall Street. You know, these are, they're not, and there there are, of course, this, the, you know, Ben Kingsley as Gandhi, uh, Henry Fonda and Golden Pond, Robert De Niro, mm-hmm. Raging Bull. It just seems like there was more of a variety of types of performances that could win um, mm-hmm. of these, you know, iconic actors who were stars, you know, superstars, celebrities. And you just don't have that as much anymore. Um, Kevin Spacey in American Beauty. It's a great character that he plays. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I feel like Mm. after the Obama era that it changed and they had to be these, uh, and they, they, uh, voters particularly like men, straight actors playing gay, gay men. 
Like, mm-hmm. there yeah. seems to be so many of them lately that have won, like Brendan Fraser, The Whale, Rami Malek, Bohemian Rhapsody. Let's see, who else? Dallas Buyers mm-hmm. Club, Matthew McConaughey, you know. A milk, mm-hmm. Sean Penn, like that's that's one, you know, that's that's quite a significant representation yeah. of of characters, and I'm not sure if that's just because the Academy's more more woke now, or you know, or because those those characters that's a shortcut to sympathy and um, goodness. It makes them yeah. good. It makes them people that they want to vote for. You know, mm-hmm. um, identity and, and stuff like that plays such a huge factor. So anyway, I was bringing that up with my friend because of this year's Best Actor race. I was thinking about Killian Murphy as Oppenheimer has to be a very strong contender. Now, what, sure. do, you, what do you think about Leo in Ki- uh, Killers of the Flower Moon? It's a uh, first-rate performance that, you know, Leo often gives... He's all, you know, he really, really puts himself into it and really goes for it. He's playing a yokel this time, and he's um, he's playing a not a very uh, kind of a victim figure who's not uh, terribly sharp. You get the feeling that his, you know, his brain cell count isn't what it could or should be. Mm. Um, he's um, he's kind of a, you know, he's kind of a wimpy villain in a way. You know, he doesn't really. He's kind of led along by the real villain of the piece, who was played by Robert De Niro. Um, I don't know. I don't feel a great uh, thundering uh, uh, thing about his performance. It didn't really get me, but I didn't dislike it, and I was certainly uh, involved in the film. I never felt it was in the least bit uh, undernourishing. It was certainly... Um, you know, it came out as saying that was a formidable film by a good filmmaker, hmm. but it didn't really click and click into place that much for me, frankly. I didn't feel it was quite uh, well, what it I, should have been. It was kind of a meta meta thing, you know. Right. Well, well. Speaking of gay mm-hmm. actors uh, and gay characters, mm-hmm. um, the two competitors, main competitors for best actor, I think, are both coming from Netflix movies. Um, and are both biop- biopics, biopics, whatever you want to call it. And one mm. is um, Maestro, directed by Bradley Cooper about Leonard Bernstein. Sure. And the, the other is Rustin. Um, and I don't know if you know much about Rustin. Uh, yeah, he's a political activist from the 60s, and he was uh, quietly quietly gay, but it wasn't so much the sexuality thing. It was a, he was a very influential, um, uh, smart fellow who did very well in in that period and uh i don't know a lot about them but that's all right so that's that's what i thought too but it's totally wrong because first of all okay. dustin dustin lance black screenwriter who wrote milk co-wrote this screenplay directed by george mm-hmm. c wolf uh the, the film is produced by barack and michelle obama's company so yeah, that's yeah. probably going to launch it into best picture um and mm-hmm. C- chris rock is in it uh Divine Joy Randolph is in it. Jeffrey Wright and Audra McDonald are in it. So basically, this guy, Bayard, Bayard Rustin, was actually yeah. openly gay, and 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 his his openly gay attitude uh, apparently um, was was punished by the activists of the time. Like they 
I don't know what the word is. They demoted him or downgraded him or, or didn't give him the credit he deserved because he was gay. At least that's what the PBS special about him says. I'll send it to okay. you. Um, he was arrested for having sex with a man in a car in San Francisco. Um, what year? How far into it? Was it after the gay liberation movement had begun in the early 70s? Or what year was that? Um, that happened. Yeah, I know. I'm trying to find the name. For some reason, his first name keeps coming out of my, um, going out of my head. And so I always have to look it up every time. I can never remember his first name. Bayard Mm -hmm. Rustin. Bayard Rustin. And I'll post this on the podcast page. Um, I'm reading it right here. Sexual perversion. Mm-hmm. He was he was arrested for sexual perversion at the age of 40. And what's the date here? Okay. Openly gay uh-huh. leader in the civil rights movement. So I, that's the whole mm-hmm. point of it is that he was openly gay, and that's why right. it's that they're making the story about him because it, it makes a difference that he was openly gay as opposed to mm-hmm. in the closet. He wasn't in the he wasn't like James Baldwin. You know, or like Harvey Milk, right? Harvey Milk was openly gay, right? He was definitely had to have been because his whole thing was. But I think he's later. I think he's after this guy. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, let me just look at Har- the- Harvey. Harvey became a big star in San Francisco politics in the mid seventies, and he was murdered by Dan White in seventy eight. I think it was. But Harvey was a rising star who became. Uh, you know, more and more um, <clears throat> um, of a big name and, and a kind of a uh, leading advocate for, for the whole gay community in the mid 70s, early 70s. But he, you know, he, he struggled and uh, didn't get elected. He lost a lot and it was really a long, slow climb. But he was, he was very much out the whole time, you know, the Castro neighborhood. I love that documentary about him. I've seen that several times. Five well, or six. um, Rustin was apparently a member of the Communist Party. Uh, okay. He began working with the Socialist Party in the 1940s. He marched on Washington in 1941 to protest racial segregation in the armed forces um, and widespread discrimination of employment. He met with President Roosevelt. Rustin later organized Freedom Rides and helped to organize the Southern Christian Leadership Conference to strengthen Martin Luther King's jun- uh, leadership and teaching King about nonviolence. He later served as an organizer for the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Rustin worked alongside Ella Baker, co-director of the Crusade for Citizenship in 1954. And before the Montgomery boy- uh, bus boycott, he helped organize a group called In Friendship amongst Baker, Stanley Levinson um, of the American Jewish Cong- Congress and some other labor leaders. Um, he became head of the AFL-CIO, A. Philip Randolph Institute, um, which promoted the integration of formerly all-white unions and promoted the unionization of African Americans. During the 1970s and 80s, he served on many humanitarian missions, such as aiding refugees from Vietnam and Cambodia. At the time of his death in 1987, he was on a humanitarian mission in Haiti. Rustin was a gay man. Due to criticism over his sexuality, he usually acted as an uh, influential advisor behind the scenes to civil rights leaders. In the 1980s, he became a public advocate on behalf of gay causes, speaking at events as an activist and supporter of human rights. Later in life, 
While still devoted to securing workers' rights, Rustin joined other union leaders in aligning with ideological neoconservatism. And after his death, Mm. President Ronald Reagan praised him. On November 20, 2013, President Barack Obama posthumously awarded Rustin the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Guy who was very much ahead of his time, who was braver and yes, bolder than absolutely. most people. But there's no practical reason. There's nothing that it says this is something you should do uh, if you're uh, a gay man in the 60s, 70s. Right. Uh, why not just live your life on your own terms with your friends, with people you care for? This is... Why make a big thing about your sexuality and at that that time? It didn't help him. It was you know it was nothing that I would have done if I were well, you. Well, I think that I think that there was a time when it became when being gay became political, and that time was 1969 Stonewall riots. I think right. before that, it wasn't political. And became political. Um, and he right. lived in the time when it wasn't political. Um, what I think is interesting about this is the Obama factor and the fact that he's pushing this movie and that they he wants to be... It's very much, very much the about the world that we just lived through that is about to change. The world is changing. Our culture is changing. This mm-hmm. is very much... Um, a symbol of the Obama influence over Hollywood, which has okay. been significant. There's really no, well, there's no disconnect or difference between the Obama administration, the Democratic Party, and Hollywood. They they can't. So Hollywood can't criticize government anymore. It can't be satirical. They can't make fun of the left mm-hmm. in any way because they are aligned with them. So I think it's Mm -hmm. great in some ways. Like I spent a lot of years writing about how Obama influenced the Oscar race in a good way. But I think now as we're Mm -hmm. heading towards the the part where we really want to just kind of move on, we're still stuck kind of in this phase. So my only point of bringing this up is Mm -hmm. as I texted you a while back is is you're going to have this battle of the clash of the titans of these two gay men in the Oscar race, right? And then you have the other one being Maestro. Leonard Bernstein. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Okay. Gay man versus gay man. And then you have one of them being backed by Obama and being black. And you have, you know, two white men, Killian Murphy and Mm. Bradley Cooper. So I think it's interesting dynamic to set up the best actor race. You know, obviously a very strong gay contingent in Hollywood and, and... blogging about the Oscars and very strong woke contingent, mm-hmm. very strong identity-focused um, academy and liberal left, all of that is going to really come into play when, when they start deciding best actor and best actress, by the way, because you have Fantasia Barino potentially winning for a, a, you know a, the sort of more honest gay telling of The Color Purple. And then if you have those two winning, and then you have Barbie winning Best Picture, you have a fair gay Oscars. <laughs> Jeez Christ. <laughs> You've seen the uh, trailers for The Color Purple, right? Do you really uh, think that that's going to be some kind of formidable contender above and beyond the gay identity thing, which I know everybody feels instinct- instinctually obliged to support no matter what? I, I feel like what they're looking for is a sense of purpose when they vote. Mm-hmm. And that's that's due to the Obama's influence on the entire left, the cultural left, and that is what they want. They want this 
mm-hmm. feeling of the first black president, this moment of change to, to continue. Yeah. They want to feel that again. They want to keep it going. That's why after Obama's rise, you had the first woman, um, first woman director, Catherine Bigelow, in yeah. 2009 winning. You had 12 Years a Slave winning. You had Moonlight winning. You had all this history being made because we got into this thing of we have to make history now. First black president, okay, first whatever else, you know. Mm-hmm. And we're still in that mode. So uh, until uh, until we move through this moment in time, this moment in history, and we have evolved to the next thing, we're still in this moment. So Ident- Identity, 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 right? Identity making history, yeah. identity right. making change. I matter because I'm a good ally. I matter because... Mm-hmm. This matters because this issue matters. And that's why it's come into the trans movement, because to them, that's the most urgent, right? People are dying. So that's yeah. the most urgent where they can put their sense of purpose the most. But but gay mm-hmm. is now sort of trans adjacent. So it still has the same. This Rustin guy, like that's that's quite the, you know, the movie will have to really suck and his performance will have to really be bad for him not to win that. Win, you're saying? I'm saying... Yeah, given all of these ingredients involved here, uh, as we're talking about him, that the fact that it's backed by the Obamas, that he's gay and black. Is what about you know? It seems to me that isn't there a, a little aspect of the Oscar race that is not about this all the time and all about identity, all about racism. Well, what do you think, about, Jeff? What do you think? Well, you lived through I, all these I, last I, few years. <laughs> I would like to see, you know, like somebody like Paul Giamatti, somebody who isn't it isn't about his sexuality, it isn't about his identity, but just basically a human being, an interesting guy who uh, is is melancholy and kind of a curmudgeonly type, but maybe learns to grow a little feeling, a little, you know, goes through a little bit of a transition. That's well, like, when I, they I give out this, Oscars, you know? they celebrate, they mm-hmm. celebrate the person who's winning the moment. They celebrate the king for a day i used to call it king for a day you know um Mm -hmm. better king for a day than schmuck for a lifetime as rupert pupkin would say but i think Mm. that um that this group of people remember we talked about it last time the jamie lee curtis's of the world that they don't want to celebrate some guy they have no reason to because of this marriage between politics and culture that really mm-hmm. hasn't happened since the 1950s. The last time it was the 1950s when you had a marriage of politics and culture and you had <laughs> conservatism taking over movies and you had a lot of really bad movies back then. Yeah. Um, bad, terrible. And it took the 1960s and 70s to shatter it all. So we still have that beautiful awakening yet to come. But the the era of a guy like Russell Crowe winning for Gladiator, that's over. There's never going to be a king like that in Hollywood again. Yeah. Never. Well, I'd really like to see uh, uh, just and, and they have no reason to, av- to award Paul Giamatti anything. They might give it to Killian really Murphy not- because Oppenheimer's been such a phenomenon, you know. That's an idea. That's an idea. I Man. wasn't really riveted by his performance. I thought this is good. I believe him. He's a he's a good actor doing a good job at portraying a complex, brilliant enigmatic individual and I thought well I'm seeing something first right here but I wasn't knocked out by it I just thought this is good you know yeah, well, we have to see all the other performances and there's still a lot to come mm-hmm. so it's mm-hmm. hard to just make the call of what's best but at the moment he would obviously get my vote I thought he did a great job 
Uh, but listen, um, I thought Austin Butler was great as uh, Elvis, and, and he couldn't win, so it didn't matter. I'm just getting really sick of people winning for identity politics and all that shit. I'm just getting sick of it, you know? <laughs> I, I like to just see performances win because they... They, they tap into something that we understand about the human Well, okay, I'll ask you this. How is it yeah. that Cape Blanchett lost for Tar last year? What does that mean to you? It means that Michelle Yeoh being a non-white woman was a oh, bigger sure, deal for them to award than the better performance, which was Cape Blanchett. Yeah. Oh, that's, Absolutely. That's where, but they felt so good giving it to Michelle Yeoh. It was like a Baptist revival mm-hmm. meeting, the Oscars that night. Yeah. They were they were just they were in rapture, being saved. Mm. They were that much closer to heaven, to Obama's heaven. They were almost there, you know, and 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 mm. their souls ascending as they awarded these people. They they were beside themselves with ecstasy, um, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. The, yep. the applause and stuff. You saw it. It was a rapture. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen anything like that at the Oscars myself. <laughs> So what we're saying in some is that it's going to be another one of these years where it's going to be about a very small elite culture of industry people and they have their... Probably. You know, and and most people are just going to watch and roll their eyes and go, okay, fine, you know. If they watch I, it I mean, at all. Weird. But I, I think that huh? I think the one saving grace of this year is Barbie. I really yes, do. It I is think, a saving grace. You I know, that. it's not a little movie and it's a big movie and it's a cultural phenomenon and Listen, yeah. I, I never used to really be a big Greta Gerwig fan, as you know. I, I never did. But I thought she was. Um, mm-hmm. She did a really good job. And I'm very, right. very impressed with her vision on Barbie visually. And so, I, mm-hmm. you know, I think that she deserves to win something finally. You know, why not? Give it to her. I don't yeah. care. I, I really, sure. at this point, as I was telling my friend, I don't care that much what wins the Oscar anymore. I feel like it's been mm-hmm. so devalued that I don't even know why anyone would want to win one at this point. Because all it says is, you know, you're a symbol for our awakening. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't say anything career-wise, you know. It doesn't do what it used to do. Um, it's it's really kind of sad. I feel like the whole culture, the whole faith, the whole religion that I used to feel, I used to feel religious fervor about certain performances and certain things happening with the Oscars. I used to get so excited. I, I would I would feel all this kind of, I don't know, something welling up inside me, but I was very strongly identifying. I would get really a kind of a great contact high when I watched the I don't feel that at all anymore. I well, mean, I, I don't either. Like, I mean, as you know, you know I've been. I, what drew me to the Oscars in the first place was the competition of it, because the first year that I got ignited yeah. to predicting the Oscars and I knew I was a good predictor was the Titanic year. And I could go yeah. back to my early postings on the cinema group in 1994 when I first got online. And mm-hmm. we were talking about the Oscars and everybody there was these film snobs, you know, who really helped me sort of learn how to think about movies in a critical way. It was kind of like going to film blogging schools, this this news group I was in. And mm. um, and we were, of course, all over the moon about L.A. Confidential, and it was winning all the Critics' Awards. And I was like, you know what's going to win? Titanic. And they were like, no way. That's not going to win. That's not good enough. L.A. Confidential is way better. The Academy's never going to go for Titanic. Jim Cameron's an idiot. It's a terrible screenplay. 
And I was like, yeah, it's going to win. It's going to win. It, cause two. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, it won. And I was like, hey, I called it. But And now it seems mm-hmm. ridiculous because everybody thinks, oh, well, everybody knew Titanic was going to win. But they really didn't. It, not the, the intense people following it. Um, but back then, and, and the reason I started my, my thing was because I really wanted the good stuff to win. I really loved the competition of what's the best film? What's the best mm. performance, you know? But that isn't what they do anymore. It's not, you're not watching the Oscars anymore about best. It's not about best. Everybody knows it. It's a reflection yeah. of this newfound rapture on the left of, of Obama and politics. And, and, and you know, it, it's not... It's not about best anymore because they, they don't define it that way. You know that. You look at film Twitter. Yeah, of course. I know. So it is I what it is. What I, what I feel, uh, I've been feeling for some years, but more particularly the last two, three, four years. And it's, uh, and it's, it's nothing uh, novel to acknowledge this or to repeat it. I'm just saying I really miss feeling enthusiastic about the Oscars and about, about uh, film excellence in general. And I just feel so stuck in this fucking identity politics groove that we're all in that the industry is in and which i feel compelled to respond to and you know mm. write about i just feel very very uh ugh. you know i just wanted to be over i just wish that the next phase the next chapter you know the pushback whatever you want to call it i wish that would kick in but i, I have this horrible feeling that it won't and we're obviously going to see more of the same this year but that again uh, that said uh, I still, I would be fine. I would not be angry or upset or dismayed if if it was a big Barbie triumph here. So, you know, I have no problem with that. I I, I do applaud that film for having connected the way it did. So, yeah, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll put it this way. If it does win Best Picture, I can't argue yeah. with that. I can't say it doesn't deserve to win. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, you can't have a movie that makes that big of a splash and is that unique and yep. interesting in her vision of it. As weird yeah. as it is, you know, I, I can't say that shouldn't win. You know, I can't. Mm. I think it, you know, I think it'd be exciting for it to win. I think it'd be exciting for its fans to see it win, you know. Mm. Right. I, I, they could totally be deck the Oscar stage with pink, you know, and have it be. And imagine <laughs> they could bring out the, the Barbies could all present Oscars and, and the Kens mm. could do a dance number. Like, that yeah, would be yeah. a really fun Oscars, you know. Mm. So, anyway. All right, on that note. On that note, all right. I'm Uh, totally fine with. Okay. All right, right. okay. I'll talk to you later. Uh, Have a good day. Take care. You too. Bye. I'm doing my strong woman number, walking with my head held high, doing my strong woman number, determination in my eye. I've got the look of assurance My observations have pith And the one that I love thinks I'm wonderful But I'm not the one that he's with I'm doing my strong woman number Keeping in the bloom of health Doing my strong woman number Fixing everything myself I know how to make a decision My opinions are my own And the one that I love thinks it's wonderful That I can get along alone Cause he knows I'll never be a 
conditions I'm so easy to leave I can fix my own faucets I can plant my own life Maybe we're looking in the wrong direction Maybe we need a wife I'm doing my strong woman number And oh, I've got such self-esteem Shit. <laughs>